One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Hello and welcome to The Real Story with me, Carrie Gracie. We start in London's Trafalgar Square because here from the top of his stone column, the statue of Admiral Lord Nelson gazes out on a world transformed from empire to nation-state. It was Nelson's naval victory at the Battle of Trafalgar which helped Britannia rule the waves in the 19th century. But in the 20th century, empire gave way to nation-state. And standing here, under Nelson's column, I can see the proud national flags of the embassies of Malaysia and Uganda, Canada House and South Africa House. But for how long will the nation-state rule in the 21st century? It hasn't yet triumphed over cross-border threats like terrorism, climate change and migration. It hasn't even demonstrated that it can control its economy in the era of global companies and currencies. Some even say the nation-state is now obsolete. But if it is, what will replace it? And if it isn't, what will save it? That's the future of the nation-state, our topic this week. Let's head to the studio and meet our panel. And our panel is Rana Dasgupta of Brown University in the United States, who's author of the forthcoming book, After Nations. Also in our New York studio, Philip Bobbitt of the Centre for National Security at Columbia Law School. Here in the studio with me, Angie Hobbs of the University of Sheffield. And a welcome too to Philippe Legrain of the London School of Economics. What I want to ask you all, first of all, is your own nationality and whether it matters to you. I'll just take a couple of words from each of you. Philippe Legrain, let's start with you. I'm British and I also have a French passport, which I got after the Brexit vote. And yes, it matters to me, but so does my European identity and my identity as a Londoner. So a mixed identity. How about you, Angie? Exactly the same. I'm British and its uh, history and geography and some of its values and traditions are part of my personal narrative. I care about them. However, that doesn't stop me also caring about the EU, the global community and more local communities, such as the village where I grew up. And Rana Dasgupta, what passport do you carry and does it anchor your identity? I have a British passport. I haven't lived in the UK for a good 25 years and I care about lots of the other places I've lived in. I care about the US, France and India, where I've spent the last couple of decades. But I also care about lots of other places that I have no specific attachment. I've written a novel set in Bulgaria, which I also care about. So I think there are lots of ways of caring beyond just one's birth. How about you, Philip Bobbitt? I'm an American, but when I'm abroad, I always say I'm from Texas. Why? Is that safer? Hardly. Why Texas? Well, I think it's just something that Americans do. There are few states... Maybe Massachusetts, perhaps Louisiana, Oklahoma, California, of course, where Americans feel a particular local identity as well as their Americanness. Probably not Iowa. So, to you, a Texan local is as important as national? Probably not, but it's still important. We're going to look in a moment at the future of the nation state, but before we do that, let's try to understand exactly what it is, because it hasn't always been with us, has it? Give me the history of the nation state in perhaps one minute. Philip Bobbitt. Well, I would say the nation state begins with the constitutional innovations of the late 19th century, 
reaches its dominance after Versailles and, as uh, Ronald Desgupta has described, is now in a period of terminal decline. Well, we'll look at the decline in a moment, but first, what exactly uh, defines it? Angie Hobbs, does it need a monopoly on defence, on taxation, on law, or all of the above? Yes, it's a, a sovereign political body, independent from other bodies. I would say that it really emerges in the modern world after the Peace of Westphalia in 1648. It clearly grows a lot during the 19th century, not always in healthy ways, but then it comes into its own after World War One. in some respects, being seen as a vehicle for providing global peace, though not all the nation states created by the powers after World War One were helpfully or thoughtfully done. And Rana Descripta, I mean, it wasn't always the norm. Empires were once predominant. Why did they pass and hand the baton to the nation state? Empires are probably the primary form of large-scale political organisation across history. This period since the First World War is unique. And it's unique also because it was largely a decision. Uh, Usually the handover of power has been by force, by invasion and occupation. And to a great extent, what happened after 1919 was a simple matter of global consensus that the European empires no longer had the moral authority to continue. And that authority broke down consecutively in in nation after nation. But the national feeling that characterized these nations which came out of empire was quite a modern feeling. In many of those places, there had been no such feeling for uh, most of history. Many of those places were characterized by city identities or tribal identities, and the national culture and national community that arose in the 20th century was very hurriedly put together. And so what is it? I mean, we talked about the monopolies on defence and taxation and law, but apart from those nuts and bolts and borders, what does bind? Is it language? Is it sport? Is it culture? Is it symbols? It's different in different countries. If you look at the banknotes of different countries, they have different symbols for what it is that binds them together. But in all cases, there is a great process of education and propaganda involved in producing this sense of national belonging. People from feudal overlords and farmers and fishermen and and merchants and all these people who, who characterized 17th and 18th century Europe suddenly finding themselves to be French or Italian or German required an enormous program of propaganda, which involved things like the invention of national literature, for instance, that these are the books that express our feelings as French people or German people, a sense of history that the nation had already always existed in a kind of embryonic form and was just waiting for its modern expression. And yes, an enormously important role of institutions, that these institutions exist to express our will as a, as a nation. Fascinating. And what about Philip Legrain, apart from these narratives and the spin and the literature and the everything else? Is there a kind of functional demonstration that the nation state can improve the life of the citizen? 
I think it's important to distinguish before we get there between two different kinds of nation states. There are nations which are based on common ethnicity and in some cases actually predate the state, for example, the unification of the German-speaking peoples into a country called Germany. And in other cases, there are nations based on civic values, like the United States, which is based on allegiance to the US Constitution. You know, there's a tension between them. Increasingly, though, in a diverse world, or at least in, in the West, we see a movement towards nations based on civic values, even in countries which were previously based on ethnicity. So, for example, Germany reformed its citizenship law in 2000 to say that people who were immigrants who had been born in Germany and their children could become uh, Germans, which wasn't the case before when it was purely based on so-called blood. Yes, I think it might be helpful just to look at the Latin root of the word nation, natio. It means being born. And initially it was the tribe or race into which you were born. But then it very quickly in Roman times got overlaid with ideas of place, you know, the place your tribe comes from. But then you get ideas in the ancient world of what kind of language, laws, values, customs bind your tribe together. So when we're rethinking the notion of a nation state now, we don't have to go down the ethnic route. We don't even have to go down the route of place. We can look at other values and traditions which might bind us together. A multiplicity then from Angie Hobbs, from Philip Legrain, of different aspects and dimensions of the nation state. Philip Bobbitt, is there a, a lowest common denominator that they all must have? I usually define constitutional orders as having a unique claim to legitimacy. So the nation state, the industrial nation state, says, give us power and we will improve your material well-being. And that distinguishes it from the imperial state nations that preceded it or from the great aristocratic territorial states that preceded that or the kingly states of the 17th century, the princely states of the 16th century, each made a unique claim for power. Well, we'll get back to the claim for power in the early 21st century in a moment because the nation state and this discussion of its demise is obviously a startling topic for many of us. Plenty of people are still hungering to create one rather than to destroy one. The world's newest nation state, South Sudan, for example, born in 2011 only, and recent years have also seen independence referendums in Iraqi Kurdistan, in Catalonia and in Scotland. Four years ago, the voters in Scotland rejected independence, 55% to 45%. Alex Neil is a member of the Scottish Parliament for the Scottish Nationalist Party, believes in the independence of Scotland. Alex Neil, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Tell us why. Why does Scotland need to make itself an even smaller nation state? Well, it wouldn't actually be smaller because it, part of the motivation is that we are treated as a province, as a region, really, of England as far as the mentality in Westminster is concerned. And what we want to do is play a much bigger role, which Scotland traditionally did in the international community. And I think we would be a much more internationalist nation than we're allowed to be at the present time. But you already have your own parliament, you already have a legal educational system, tax raising powers, health, local government, social work, housing, tourism, etc. Your own flag, your own football team. Is that not enough? 
No, it's not, because what primarily is motivating us is the economic case and the social case for independence, because the political culture between Scotland and south of the border is very different. We're a much more progressive nation traditionally, and we're having, if you look at the present situation, we have never, ever voted Tory since 1955 in Scotland, and yet for many, many years in the intervening period, we've been run by Tory governments, in some cases very, very right-wing Tory governments, and that culture, that politics is totally alien to the culture and politics of the Scottish people. Some would call that the Conservative Party, just in case they don't recognise the reference to the Tory party. But I put it to you, Alex, that um, you didn't win, despite this argument. I mean, Scots may feel that they're ruled by a party which doesn't represent their political ideology, but they actually didn't vote for independence in the end. No, we weren't able to persuade them, but I believe that we'll get a second chance and we'll be more successful the second time. But what do you say to the case that the challenges of the 21st century require bigger organisations rather than smaller ones politically, that existing nation states already can't handle the you know, cross-border challenges of climate change, migration, terrorism, globalisation. So what is the argument for making nations even smaller? Well, we, we need both, actually. We need to think locally and act globally and to ensure that, for example, Scotland's interest is promoted and protected. Scotland needs to be there at the top table. So we need to be at the top table in NATO. We need to be in the United Nations as of right, as a member of the United Nations. Some people would argue if we weren't coming out of the European Union, then clearly we would want a top seat at the European Union, similar to Luxembourg and Austria. None of these countries would in any way want to give up their international representation in all of these bodies. If you look at a small country like Norway, it's a pro rata contribution to international peacekeeping, to international aid is far, far higher than the big countries like the United States. So small countries either acting sometimes individually or acting in unison with other small countries or in unison with other big countries or through international bodies like the UN we can make a much, much much bigger and better contribution than we're allowed to at the present time. Alex Neil, thank you so much for joining us. Well, as I mentioned before, the Scots are not the only ones who want a new nation. So why do so many people still hunger for them? Rana Descripta. I think right now, whatever's going to happen, I, I don't think that nation states are going to disappear. That level of organisation will remain important, whatever happens to smaller and larger levels. And quite clearly, as your guest just said, I mean, most of the richest and most successful countries in the world are small countries. The Scandinavian countries, Singapore, other small hubs for finance and services. So the idea of splitting countries up is natural, that there will be regional regions like Scotland, like Catalonia, that feel that they're not represented by the centre and they could achieve more otherwise. But I think that there is a kind of wider issue here also, which is that at the moment, the centre of countries is is losing its sense of political aura and breakaway energies are escalating in the world. So I think we'll have more and more of these kinds of conversations over time. If I may interrupt, uh, it's uh, Philip Bobbitt. I think that the nation state exalted one particular national cultural historic group and enforced its moral and ethical values through law. 
And this was true in Britain. It was certainly true in America. It's true in China, where you have one very dominant ethnic group. As that state was fused with that nation, the people in that group sort of took it for granted that there was no difference between their values and the values of the entire population of the state. So I think it's perfectly natural that uh, Alex Neal or others would say, now hang, hang on, we have a different culture. We'd like to have a political organization that doesn't maroon us inside a nation state run by a different national group. I think that there is a way forward for groups like that in something like the European Union. I don't think Catalonia, Lombardy, Scotland would ever be feasible as industrial nation states on their own. But they can be made to work inside a much larger group. I think uh, Neil mentioned uh, NATO, for example. We'll look at the wider groups in a moment. But first, just to deal with those nation states, because there's there's a sense sometime that, that war, there was a kind of 20th century golden age in which the fit between politics, economics, information in these established states worked. But I suppose what I'm hearing from this discussion is that it never really worked for everyone, that there were a lot of ethnic, religious, whatever problems that were simply suppressed in the nation states of old Angie. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm defending the nation state as the least (laughs) worst option. So yes, and we've increasingly got challenges of globalisation, and we're going to have to think very hard about how nation states can tackle those global issues. However, I still think that retaining the nation state as a model is going to be the most efficient and indeed democratic way of trying to tackle global issues. Because my Though, of course, I want larger global bodies such as the United Nations. There is a decrease in transparency and accountability and, in my view, real democracy, the bigger you get. So we have a very challenging time ahead of us and the nation state is going to have to work hard to survive. But I still hope it does because I think both larger and smaller bodies both give rise to even more problems. I suppose, Philip Legrain, I just want to, um, sorry, Philippe Legrain, I just want to concentrate for a moment on the successes of that nation state before we move on to really tackle the challenges it faces now. Because we're all very familiar with the enormous increase in the number of nation states after the Second World War. But that, you know, post-colonial population subjected to that cocktail of authoritarianism, ethnic cleansing in some cases, war, corruption, ecological devastation. In a way, the nation state never worked for some countries which were only coherent on the map. But which nation states have worked and what have they delivered for their people? I think you're absolutely right to say that when the colonial empires broke up after the Second World War, that new nation states were created where basically a European model model of political organisation was imposed in places which had no tradition or aspiration necessarily to that and that in many cases artificial nations were created or states which didn't function properly and therefore um, the dream of national self-determination often wasn't realised. I think that there's a danger in attributing economic and other forms of success to the former political organisation, i.e. one can say that Western Europe and the United States were incredibly successful after the Second World War, 
can you attribute this to the fact that they were nation states or was it due to other factors? I would be sceptical about attributing it to their former political organisation. Clearly, though, for some, this is seen as the golden age of the nation state where international interaction, though increased in the 1930s, was limited. Capital flows were relatively low. Population flows were relatively low, though increasing, and trade, while liberalising, was still relatively small as a share of GDP. And therefore, there was a feeling that national governments controlled economies in a way that there isn't that feeling uh, today. I think that's a misperception. I think the national governments actually have much more control uh, than people think, and that the reasons why, in many cases, that they have retreated from their role uh, is due to domestic politics rather than due to global forces. We'll come back to what they face at the moment. I just want to tackle for one moment longer this question of was there a golden age of the nation state in Europe and North America and is it passing Rana Descripta? There certainly is a moment to which a lot of people look back as a golden age and that moment is what they call in France les trente glorieuses, the 30 glorious years from 1945 to 1975. And and clearly the structure of the state at that point was very different to what it is now. In fact, we can define the present moment as the systematic dismantling of the system that that existed at that time. And very important to that system was the fact that economies did basically exist importantly at a national scale. So capital and labour were both national in General Motors, for instance, it's American capital and American labor, American steel making these cars. And employees and corporations both are paying very high levels of taxation to the American government, which is redistributing that money internally. So that has the nation state as a closed system. And there's a very high level of moral purpose associated with that closed system. From the 1970s onwards, the whole point of the reconfiguring of the global economy has been to spatially relocate things so that labor is in one part of the world and capital is in in another so that things can escape the national legal framework. You export jobs not simply so that you can find people to work for less but also so that you don't have to be bound by the, the regulations that are binding your managerial classes. And so The global economy starts to take advantage of the lawlessness of international space compared to the legality of national space. We'll come back to that, Rana Descripta. Philip Bomber, can I just press you for a moment then on whether there's a danger that the independence and self-determination movements that we see around us today are harking back to some kind of golden age model. After all, you know, many of them, just like us, just like the politicians and just like many older voters, grew up alongside that golden age model in our heads. So are people hankering for something which is no longer available? Possibly. I mean, I would say the industrial nation state was a tremendous success. It brought mass suffrage on a a scale never seen before, mass free public education in most states, mass health programs, that states should want to achieve that if they haven't already. It seems perfectly reasonable. I also think that there's a lot to the cultural drive to have a state, the fusion of a particular cultural group with a state that will enforce its values. Having said that, I don't think that that's really the the, the option for the most powerful states because I don't think the industrial nation state is itself strategically 
the most powerful form, and that's why it's uh, in decay. But I know we'll get to that later. If you like the real story, you're probably like some of the many other BBC World Service podcasts. You could try Witness, our history series told by the people who were there. First-hand accounts of some of the most important events which have helped to shape our lives and the places where we live. But now let's get back to this edition of The Real Story with me, Carrie Gracie, looking at the nation-state. My guests... We're joined by Philippe Legrain of the London School of Economics, Andy Hobbs of the University of Sheffield, Rana Descripta, author of forthcoming book After Nations, and Philip Bobbitt of Columbia Law School. Welcome back, all of you. Just before we move on, I want to ask a top question to get a sense of where you stand on this. Do each of you feel that nation states are losing influence over the things that matter to their citizens? And if you do think that... Why? Angie Hobbs. I do, but I don't think it's irreversible. There are clearly challenges to do with global money, media, the environment, migration, which nation states are struggling to keep up with. But I think there are ways they can do that. And partly in sort of rebellion against that, we're seeing a resurgence of particularly virulent and aggressive nationalism. So we have global challenges and some very dangerous localised nationalist reactions. And at the moment, nation states are struggling, but I don't think they have to. I think there are ways forward. Uh, Rana Descripta, nation states losing influence over what matters. I think it's definitely the case that nation states have lost control over major aspects of the financial system. And that's been a self-conscious, deliberate project in the corporate and financial world to reassert the supremacy of money over the state at this point in time. I think that project has been extremely brilliant and successful. And I don't think there is much that nations can do from within their national borders to reverse it. I think there are also other things that are causing the current loss of authority of states. If we look at states in in the Middle East and Africa, for instance, the authority that kept them together for the second half of the 20th century after independence was very much external. There was Cold War money and military power poured into many of those nation states to hold them together with strong men as the people in charge. And in the wake of the Cold War, we've seen the collapse of many of those systems because they never really had the institutional or or cultural integrity to hold together in the absence of those kind of external forces. So that's half our panel agreed that nation states losing influence. Uh, Rana says something of a crisis over the things that matter to their citizens. Philippe Legrain, do you agree? Well, I think it's rather odd to be talking about whether the nation state is in decline uh, at this moment. I mean, after all, One of the biggest trends of recent years um, has been the reassertion of nationalism, the reassertion of national control. You've seen President Trump elected on a platform against globalism and putting America first. Uh, You've seen a Brexit vote, which may result in a more global Britain or a less global Britain, but certainly was a reassertion of uh, national sovereignty. And you see uh, an increased nationalism, an increased assertion of national control in uh, China, India, Russia and elsewhere. The nation state is not in decline, it's resurgent. And Philip Bobbitt, where do you stand? Oh Well, I'd say the nation state is definitely in rapid decay among the reasons or the ones already given. Also, I would add the commodification of weapons of mass destruction, 
transnational threats, not just terrorism, but AIDS, SARS, climate change. Of course, the intervening of uh, global finance is an important, important role. And I don't think that it's odd. I should think that you would expect a nationalist backlash if people generally felt that they no longer were in control of the state, the state was no longer enforcing their moral values, that a global electronic culture had superseded uh, local mores. I, I don't find it odd at all. Well, I don't really see how AIDS and SARS undermine the nation state, nor do I see how weapons of mass destruction and the proliferation of them does either. It might shift, well, may I explain it, it? It might shift the balance of power and it might make smaller states more powerful relative to big ones, but I don't think it undermines the, the nation state per may, se. May, and I think there's a distinction which is really important here, which is between what nation states and what governments are doing and what they could do. It's one thing to say that governments have deregulated the financial system. It's another thing to say that they couldn't re-regulate it. Yes, of course, you could see that, but, uh, but you haven't. And it hasn't been some global conspiracy. The fact is the deregulation has led to the creation of a great deal more wealth. And I would like just to challenge you on the idea that the commodification, the spread of weapons of mass destruction to non-state groups, to states that are much less powerful actors in the, in the state system, does undermine the confidence that people have in their own state. I mentioned AIDS and SARS because they are global threats that are transnational in nature, that no state can solve on its own. And I think that has the effect of a citizen of making her lose confidence in that particular constitutional order. And Jobs, I think we need to make a distinction between short and long-term effects here. So I think we can probably all agree that confusion and fears over globalization have in some parts given rise to this resurgence in powerful nationalist feelings. However, that's a short-term effect. If those powerful nationalist feelings take the form of America first, Germany first, Britain first, wherever it is first, that kind of attitude will eventually lead to decline because it can only lead to conflict and possibly eventually war, which will hugely damage nation states. I want to pause for a moment and, and look at uh, to what extent is the nation state the sovereign actor or to what extent is money becoming supreme? Because one of the challenges, of course, is globalisation. Capital flows across borders, governments needing to attract multinationals, uh, the suggestion of low corporation taxes in some countries. And for poor developing nations, sovereignty can be at stake some argue, as companies pursue them in court even for lost earnings. So let's look at the example of the global showdown between global business and national governments through one industry, the mining industry. Much of it is based in Canada. Let's talk to Jamie Neen of Mining Watch, a non-profit Canadian organisation which monitors the industry's impact around the world. Jamie, thank you for joining us. Pleased to be with you. How do you feel multinational mining companies use their leverage and to what extent national governments feel sovereign in these discussions and negotiations? The relationships that exist now between global capital and mining companies and extractive companies is a product of several decades of changes. And what's happened has been a shift in power clearly between the nation state and capital, 
But that wasn't accidental, and it wasn't a decision that governments made on their own. You know, we had a debt crisis, we had structural adjustment programs, and so, you know, what we're looking at is really the Washington Consensus, as it was called, and the installation of foreign direct investment as the highest and best purpose of public policy in developing countries. As a result, laws were changed, all kinds of protections were removed, and repatriation of profits and so on was facilitated. So what we're looking at now is a situation where, you know, not by accident, these companies have all kinds of legal and policy mechanisms in their favor, and that's ignoring the the points where they choose to act illegally. Put simply, do you think this is currently, in the year 2018, operating in favour of the citizens in the countries where those mines are established? In general, no. And I think even in specific mining towns, there are a few people benefiting. There are a few people who have jobs, decreasing numbers because of the increasing mechanization of the process. And depending where you are in the world, you can have up to hundreds of thousands of people displaced out of that process. If you, parts of Africa, for instance, have gone from subsistence to not even having a land base for subsistence. And the government is not profiting. So this is, when we look at the overall flows, you say, well, the the mining companies are very proud of having created hundreds and maybe thousands of jobs and of uh, contributing hundreds of millions of dollars to the local economy or the, the national economy. But in fact, there are tens of billions leaving the country at the same time. And is the nation state in these developing countries where these extractive industries are operating, is it adapting to become more effective in defending the interests of its citizens. Yeah, it's a struggle. And and I think what we've seen is many different countries trying different routes to extricate themselves from the international treaties and obligations that they've gotten themselves into to rebuild a policy base that makes sense for their benefit. And it's a struggle because they're up against stability clauses in investment contracts that may run for 20 years. They're up against international investment treaties and free trade agreements with investment protection built into them, allowing them to enforce unfavorable conditions and to object to perhaps they're they're being excluded from pursuing a development on the basis of environmental damage or social impact. And governments, including the Canadian government, have gotten in trouble for this. Jamie Neen, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much. Philippe Legrain, I'd like to come to you first because you were arguing a moment ago that, um, you know, nation states are effective sovereign actors. We heard a, a more nuanced account there from Jamie Neen. What's your reflection on that? Many of the things that have been said are correct in the sense that nation states no longer intervene in the way that they did previously. At the same time, those decisions can be reversed and to a certain extent are being reversed. And you've seen that with the increase in financial regulation since the crisis, which hasn't gone far enough, but which is real. There's been a collapse of international capital flows. Um, which you've seen it with increasing protectionism in trade and the threat of much more uh, of that to come. You've seen it with uh, increased uh, immigration uh, barriers. You've seen it with Britain uh, leaving the EU. Before leaping to the conclusion that the nation state is somehow uh, doomed to decline and somehow thinking that because there are international issues that require the cooperation of nation states, that somehow it's no longer going to be the main form of political organisation in the world, I think is a very big leap. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the nation state. I'm not a big fan of nationalism. But I observe that it is an extremely resilient form of political organisation and uh, the dominant one in the world. And I don't think that's changing. Rana Descupta. 
I think this idea that nation states make sovereign decisions and they can make any decision they like is clearly not the case. We only have to imagine the scenario of voters in the UK electing a government to impose a 90% taxation on the highest income levels as, as existed in the 1970s. That would essentially exclude the UK um, if it were to adopt 1970s taxation levels from the global economy because nation states today are clients of global capital and must keep to policies that keep global capital flowing into their borders. In the case of the poorest countries, the whole point of global capital is to ensure that there is essentially no political and legal infrastructure to hinder the freedom of corporations, etc., to operate within their borders in a certain way. Jamie was was hinting at this, but if you look, for instance, at the Democratic Republic of Congo, which has had one of the most disastrous experiences of nationhood since its independence in 1960, including, of course, the most fatal war of the last 25 years, Congo, of course, has extremely valuable mineral resources, and it's in the interests of everybody to essentially keep that state failed because it allows mining companies simply to take what is there and to do deals with local warlords over money without any any kind of legal hindrance or taxation issues or whatever. So Congo is not making sovereign decisions about these sorts of things. But I suppose, Rana Desgupta, it never has. And I suppose what we're talking about is in 2018, is that version of the failed state coming to states in Europe and other parts of the developed world even, which previously thought of themselves as functional. I mean, I'm thinking of the power of the big internet corporations or the big banking corporations. Are we in a new game? The rich countries of the world house essentially the managerial classes of the world. And those people are committed to their own kinds of legal protections. And they have the political and financial power to ensure that those happen. So that it's difficult to see Britain or France or Germany or the United States collapsing in those kinds of ways. Just as international capital requires certain areas of complete lawlessness in order for certain activities to be housed in those kinds of places which would be strictly illegal in other parts of the world, it also requires zones of high levels of legality, property protection, etc., which is what the rich world benefits from. But the idea that the rich world will see waning powers of of national governments to control what capital does within its borders and when it is withdrawn, that is already well advanced. And the anxieties of populations watching spiraling inequality and the inability of governments to do anything about it except just posture, that is already something we're we're very familiar with. Philip Bobbitt. I think that the phrase that uh, Ronald Dasgupta uses, uh, that states have become clients of capital, really probably is right. Having said that, we can't omit the immense amount of wealth created. It's it's not that a cabal of capitalists has somehow seized power and that if we just got rid of them, we would have thriving economies. On the contrary, it's often said that the greatest growth in wealth in human history has occurred since the end of the Cold War, that more than half the people who lived on subsistence incomes have now moved above that level. The nation state, a state of regulation, law, and the enforcement of cultural values through law, has given way to forms of the state that I think are its future that are much better at creating wealth. Now, they're 
<laughs> they're not so good at good many other things, but they are good at that. I want to, before we let you, anyone go, I yes. want to get to talking about the future. So, Philip Bobbitt, when you look at where the nation state is headed, given the challenges it faces, uh, what's the outlook? I think the state has changed its constitutional order several times, both changed before Westphalia uh, and after Westphalia. And I think it will change again. The constitutional order changes when it makes a different claim for power. I should just mention that Westphalia is the 17th century treaty which established in Europe territorial sovereignty. Not really. It was probably the Treaty of Augsburg a century before they did that. But I think that's certainly a common view. In any case, the constitutional order of states uh, has changed before. I think it will change again. I suspect that it will be something like give us power and we will maximize your opportunity or we will create the greatest amount of wealth as opposed to assuring the well-being of any particular national group. I want to hear from Angie Hobbs on this. I still think that for all its current problems that the nation state is the best vehicle for delivering truly accountable liberal representative democracy and social justice and the conditions for individual and communal... Interesting, despite the challenges to that social justice that we've heard. And individual and communal flourishing. I still think it has the best chance of doing that on two conditions. One, that governments are honest about what they can and can't deliver and that electorates are mature and thoughtful about what a government can do for them. And are those conditions met? Currently not, but they could be. And two, that we make a distinction between sovereignty and being in control. A nation state may be politically and legally sovereign, but currently not much in control over many uh, financial and other issues that are going on. However, with the help of various international bodies and international relations, it can get a better grip on some of these global issues. And properly used, those international bodies and relations could actually help national governments deliver on more of their promises. And what is the way of achieving that in a way that's more promising than the conversations at present? I mean, that relationship between the local, the national and the international. I'm a a philosopher who specialises in ethics and political theory and a great advocate of uh, philosophy in schools and and also uh, civic education in schools. I think we have probably two generations who have really not been thinking hard about constitutions, governments, what can be delivered, how they can be delivered. Uh, We need to think very hard about in what ways democracy can be truly transparent and accountable. Of course, we have global challenges and we need to tackle them globally, but I don't think only through global institutions they can't be fully transparent and accountable. So I would say we start with a better education, both of the electorate and indeed our government. Philip Bobbitt, can I just come back to you for a moment on that? Because earlier you talked about the importance of education narratives, ideology in a way, in that sense of a nation state, in a sense of belonging to it. Are you asking if I'm in favour of teaching about constitutions? Yes, of course I am. I teach constitutional law. Does that education of a new generation to have a slightly different relationship with its local identity, its national identity and its international identity, do you think that will play a role in making for a more effective nation state in future? I doubt it because the fundamental promise of the nation state cannot be successfully discharged. I think the nation state is anaerobic. The harder it tries, the the weaker it gets. I don't think that means the end of the state. Far from it. 
In fact, I think one of the advantages of programs like this is that uh, it can open up the minds of people to consider what the alternatives might be. It may also help them to look at the past and history to see what other constitutional orders there have been besides the nation state. So when so just to dwell on that for a moment, you know, what are, you know, in a couple of thoughts, the key alternatives that you'd like people to take away and think about? I think that that managerial market states, uh, mercantile market states, entrepreneurial market states, all states that use the market are probably the future for the state. Now, they have different values and they'll act in different cultures, but I think that's where we're headed. And when you see things like going from conscription to all-volunteer force, from state-owned enterprises to sovereign wealth funds, the deregulation of industry and of women's reproduction, very importantly, all of these are, I think, steps in that direction. So just, um, you know, for those of us who are not familiar with the terms managerial state market state, in what ways do those differ from the nation state that we've been discussing? Well, nation states say, give us power and we will improve your material well-being. That's what uh, Franklin Roosevelt said. That's what uh, Hitler said. That's what uh, Stalin said. That's what Lyndon Johnson said. Market states say, I'm speculating, of course, uh, give us power and we will maximize the opportunity of individuals. And I think that's where we're headed. But uh, whether I'm right or wrong about that, I don't think we can go back. Philippe Legrain. Again, I mean, I don't think that that's where we're headed at the moment, a time when we're having a reassertion of nationalism and therefore of group rights over individual rights. Where I'd like to see is I'd like to see much greater cooperation internationally between uh, nation states. I'd like to see stronger international institutions. At the same time, there's a tension between that and the fact that a democracy is primarily rooted at a national level. And I think the best chance to reconcile that is the European Union of creating some kind of new hybrid uh, form of political organisation with different levels of of political accountability uh, and uh, enhanced democracy. For us to get from here to there, though, you would need to create a a genuine European democracy. And for, for the moment, we have a partial one. Angie Hobbs. Part of the the national conversation that I was recommending uh, a moment ago is that we think really hard about the different layers of meaning that we've been uncovering in this programme and the word nation, because we're not going to get a flourishing nation state which has a, a viable chance in the future unless we look at the different ways that people can be a nation and be attached to a nation. I think that if we take the route of inclusive civic nationhood, then the nation state has a much better chance in the future of providing at least some of the goods that it offers to its citizens than if we go down our current route of exclusive aggressive nationalism. And Rana Descripta, your book is called After Nations, so I'm going to give you the last word on what you think comes next. Well, I think there's no reversal. We're not going to substantially reverse the technological and financial integration of the world, not at least unless there's some catastrophic collapse. And therefore, we have to start thinking about what kind of political infrastructure is required to manage the things in this integrated zone that were previously managed at the national level. The civic values that Angie talks about, I think, now are projected onto that globe. The things that people are buying, the expensive things that that, uh, richest people in the world buy are assembled and and, uh, mined and everything on very far away. 
And in order to fulfill the various kinds of political and economic responsibilities that we have to each other on this planet today, we, we now have to think about a global infrastructure. It's not clear what that would look like, but I think that starting to build transnational financial regulations would be a step in returning monies that are currently kept in the private domain, kept offshore, etc., to some kind of public. We need to think also about deterritorializing things like citizenship. The fact that so many people are dying at borders in order to collect rights that are embedded in territories seems like a signal that we should use the the great store of knowledge that we now have about deterritorialized systems to help people where they started from rather than forcing them to move. I think the kinds of sovereignty that uh, have been established um, by in the nation state are actually not so great as we think they are. Um, national governments have used their sovereign power to oppress their citizens, declare illegal wars, and all sorts of things. And I think that if we were to establish um, the kinds of um, international systems that were envisioned after the, after the First World War by the people who designed the world we now live in, uh, and which were never, never realized, um, we might actually do far better for humanity than this century of nation states actually has. So many ideas from you all. I'm going to give you each one last line, but keep it brief. Philip Bobbitt, do you want a last thought? Uh, sure. Uh, I would just say that uh, we're in a period of transition, and therefore we ought to be as imaginative as possible, that looking at the past can actually free our minds uh, and can give us other models, not because we will find a way to replicate them, but because we'll see that the institutions we have of the constitutional order, not as old as we thought, not as permanent as we thought, and, uh, and are undergoing some change, as they have in past eras. Angie Hobbs. We will uh, improve nation-states when we improve nations. And Philippe Legrand. Uh, I'd like to find a way to better reconcile uh, global economic integration with national democracy. And Ron, as soon as I've let, I let everybody else have one last word, do you want one last word? We're not necessarily at the end of history, and the, the situation, the system that we've inherited from our, our ancestors is not necessarily the last system. We can actually design the future rather than wait for it to happen. And that is where we will have to end it. We're out of time. Rana Dasgupta, Angie Hobbs, Philip Bobbitt, Philippe Legrain. Thank you all so much for joining me. For now, from me and the team, that's The Real Story for this week.